Hello, everyone. This is Michael Gallagher of the MNM podcast. I'm coming to you from a proxy for the Center for Research in Digital Education, aka my kitchen table. I am joined by uh, Miles Bellini, and I am um, in my wife's sewing room slash office slash den slash my. There's a desk in here I can use when my kids don't disturb me. Um, so I work in digital learning applications and media and learning, teaching, and web. And we, Excellent. And we uh, – go ahead. I was, I so, uh, yeah, I'm just going to say, and we are joined by a very special guest today. Special guest, would you like to introduce yourself? I certainly can. I'm Anne-Marie Scott, and I am the Deputy Provost at Athabasca University in Canada. Oh. But oh. some of you might remember <laughs> me. <laughs> Hey, I don't think anyway. previous role. Yeah, no, I'm totally dead to a lot of yeah. people. Now. I'm, I'm yeah. well aware of that. <laughs> you left. So people are like, nah, that's just a scraper. Yeah. Like, no way. I, I, left, I left just before the largest learning technology event in known history happened. <laughs> <laughs> Did you plan oh, yeah. this? <laughs> I like to think I had influence, but I don't think I had that much influence, and I'm not sure this is what I would have chosen. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah. So previously, your title was you were the director, oh, deputy director of deputy learning, director. teaching, and web. Yeah, okay. and uh, the boss of you. Yeah, as yeah, much as anybody can be. <laughs> <laughs> what? what pay tell what do you say um, uh, couldn't possibly elaborate not while you're recording <laughs> so and you and you left us as um, did. in did. december time i did the way you, you phrased that to, is <laughs> you decided to go somewhere else because you just didn't like us anymore i think personally uh and uh you went to i'm going to say this athabasca i did which is where well, I haven't gone to Athabasca, so this is a fascinating question. Mm. Athabasca University is the, I guess you would call it the equivalent of the UK Open University. Okay. Um, so much like the UK Open University is technically in Milton Keynes, um, Athabasca University is technically in the town of Athabasca, which is in northern Alberta. Okay. Um, but actually, um, being an online, fully online university, um, it doesn't actually matter so much where a lot of people are. So um, clearly all of our students study online and the vast majority of our academic faculty are a remote distributed workforce. Um, and even our administration is not all concentrated in Athabasca. So, so big units of it are. Um, but the, the, you know, the administrative capability is, is spread I'd say between Athabasca, Edmonton, and Calgary, mostly. Wow. Which, in Albertan terms, are um, in Canadian terms, are um, you know just next to each other, like you know seconds <laughs> away. But it's one hundred and forty right. kilometers from here to Athabasca, and mm. so about something under two hours drive, and it's about three hours drive down to Calgary. So I'm I'm actually in Edmonton. That's where I based myself. And uh, and to put it in kind of context, it, that's you know that's that's a massive drive to one office to another office where we're kind of used to in Edinburgh, you know maybe a five minute walk, begrudged five minute walk down the road, and you're like, oh, I've got a meeting here. Yep. I can walk five minutes. <laughs> what? <laughs> and you're like driving three hours. Yep. 
And and I had this whole conversation about what kind of car to get when I when I um, was prepping to come over and um, that road up to Athabasca. The vast majority of it is a um, not a rural road. It's good quality road, um, but you're traveling through. There's nothing basically. It's just flat prairie, um, you know, forests, um, and so suicidal animals will basically try and hurl themselves across the road kind of around you know sunrise sunset that kind of dusky sort of part of the day and when I say animals I mean like enormous deer and moose Um, and so the conversations I had about cars were you know get something that's big enough to withstand hitting an animal that you will walk away from alive so wow (laughs) so I was like I'm gonna live in a city I'll get a small runabout and they're like no you want something with four-wheel drive for the snow and that you can survive hitting an animal and okay (laughs) You can get. I'm sure you can get a, a mini four wheel drive that has like um, guns on it or something like that. <laughs> In this country, yes, yes, that would be possible. <laughs> so, and, and what's your? So, what is your role then? What's your new so, role? So, my role, my role is deputy provost, um, full title deputy provost academic operations. So, I've got. Um, in terms of operational responsibilities, I look after the Office of the Registrar, um, Learner Support Services, and the Centre for Learning Accreditation. Um, and, and the Office of the Registrar is, is kind of what you might expect, student enrolments, submissions, um, graduate uh, bursaries, graduations, awards. Um, by awards, we mean scholarships. The language is a bit different. Um, and exams, so management of exams. Um, and uh, in learner support services, advising, counselling, mental health support, um, a, a assistance for students with disabilities. So looking at accommodations that need to be made to learning to support students with whatever it is they need, dependent on you know what what kinds of um, disabilities they have. And um, the Centre for Learning Accreditation administer and and operate what's called PLAR, Prior Learning Achievement Recognition. So this is where somebody has a substantial experience, um, but they don't have, and they want to trade it in for academic credit, basically. So it's a mentored portfolio process where you you essentially demonstrate what it is you know, um, and then it's assessed and against the programme of study that you're interested in, and you can get various amounts of credit towards the program that you want to study without having to take courses and essentially instead of having to take a bunch of courses where you already know the content just to take the exam at the end to get to get the grades to get the credit you can put together a portfolio that demonstrates you already know certain things Um, and that's quite important well it it is it's a fascinating thing and it, it takes us into all sorts of more interesting spaces about you know what does the future of learning look like and um you know, is it about the experience or is it about the outcomes? Um, and, and being an open university and having the kind of profile that an open university does. Large number of our learners are older. They're in work. Um, they may not even have graduated high school, let alone had any kind of post-secondary education. They're very often first in family to come to university. Um, so how do we how do we think about accrediting all of the things that somebody like that might bring to the institution, as well as how can we support them to develop what it, whatever it is that they want to get out of studying at a university. Interesting. I think that's, yeah, because it's, 
you know, like you said, about that experience aspect of it, which is, you know, in a weird way, because you've got so much experience in doing something, to go and do a whole bunch of courses, which may entail sitting, like you say, going through material that you already know and then having to do exams. And like I, I freak out with about exams. I can't handle them. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of puts me off doing certain things. But if I could show my experience, what I, what, how I can apply the knowledge I know to things relevant to it is, is way better, I think. Well, what's been interesting as I've, as I've got to understand the PLAR process is that some of the research that's been done on PLAR shows that students who complete a PLAR process and then go on into their full programme often have better outcomes at the end anyway. Because that PLAR process is a mentored process of coming to understand what it is you know and how to express that and evidence that and reflect upon that. And I think it helps people understand how to learn and how to express learning and, and, and how to think yeah. critically about what they know and what you know what knowledge is and how you require knowledge and so on. So it teaches a whole bunch of really interesting um yeah, kind of skills and and critical mm. thinking gives gives students a whole bunch of critical thinking tools that stand them in good stead for the rest of their program, and it also gives you a boost. You know, you feel good about it. You you feel competent. So there's a whole psychology in there. Is the just a, a question off the cuff here for a second? But has has the mandate for Athabasca shifted in since its foundation, or is it has it always roughly serviced this same purpose? Um, no, it's always roughly surfaced this served the same purpose. So it's our fiftieth anniversary this year. Um, there were three organisations set up within uh, twenty four months of the UK Open University being founded. So that's that's the model that underlines underlies this. Mm. Um, in Canada, there were three organisations set up: there was BC Open Learning, Taluk, and Athabasca. Um, I don't think they necessarily had the same names at the time, but um, they were inspired by the UK Open Universities model. But um, Canada has a provincial um, education system, and that does pose some interesting challenges (laughs) because Athabasca is the largest of those three open universities, Um, but but they all have this open mandate. Um, But... Um, because education is provincial, funding is provincial. But our mission and our our mandate and therefore the students that we attract are across Canada and indeed beyond Canada. I think we have students from about 90 different countries study with us. Um, so our funding is tied to one province, uh, but the students that we serve are from the entire country. And, and Alberta is still, you know, a large number of our students come from, but we have huge numbers of students from Ontario and from British Columbia as well. Um, and that, you know, there aren't open universities in those other provinces. There are limited choices for, for Canadian students in general in terms of open universities. So so it's not surprising that, Interesting. that we would be the choice. But it, it throws up some tensions because you're in a funding model and a system which is geared around educating the students who live in a particular province. Um, and so a lot of the kind of measures are just, you know, they don't apply. Or the ways of thinking about what we do don't apply. Um, so, 
yeah, that is it is it is interesting and getting more interesting. So, so see your 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 learners ratio. Is it you know? I'm guessing it's a high percentage of them is from are from Canada. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Large okay. large numbers from Canada. Absolutely. But in a, in a way, the three institutions, the three you know, are kind of competing for for users as well. So Tilluk is French speaking. Um, right. Okay. And BC Open Learning is now Thomson Rivers University, which is a half and half. So it's half half of their students are fully online open learning students, and half of their students are campus based. Um, you know, st- studying in fairly traditional looking courses on a campus in BC. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to say TRU is maybe about like 13,000 open learning students, something of that order, whereas we are, in terms of full-time equivalents, over 40,000. Um, 40,000 learners. Yeah. I mean, when you count actual numbers of students, it's higher again. But if you're talking about full-time equivalents, it's about 40, something over 40,000. And so the, the types of courses available then to those learners, is that like um, UG and PG kind of stuff or, or is it just mm-hmm. specific kind of, so it's everything? So it's, um, it's not every subject, um, but it, and graduate studies is a definitely a smaller proportion of what we do. So the focus is definitely on undergraduate. And one of the things that, um, that happens quite a lot is quite a lot of our students are just taking one course with us. They're not necessarily enrolled on a full program because they they are maybe topping up courses at another institution. So they're doing a you know full program at another institution, and a course they wanted isn't available, or um, or maybe they failed the course, and, <laughs> and it's not going to be repeated for another year. And so they can come to us and do that course, and then get transfer credit back to their oh. their home institution, and and basically graduate on time within the schedule that they had originally planned to. Um, so, you know, things like maths courses, stats courses, English courses, these sorts of things, these are, you know, things that tend to be maybe, you know, core components of other programs. If students haven't passed them in their home institution, they might come and do them with us. Because one of the other things we do is continuous enrolment and self-paced study. So at undergraduate level, the vast majority of our courses aren't cohort-based. Um, they're they're autonomous, flexible, self self paced courses. So you enroll, you get into the course, you study, you've got six months to complete, and that's it. And you crack on. So in terms of being able to you know to tuck a course into a program somewhere else, you're not waiting for it to come round in the next semester. You can get into it almost hmm. immediately. Do you find uh, with that model, do you have to be, well, maybe not because they tend to be older students or a little bit more uh, self-aware, you know, mature, but do you have to wrap uh, support around that in such a way so students have an idea of how to proceed through? Or do you find that they're pretty self-sufficient and they're just able to get? No, we do. We do orientation. So there's there's an orientation program that students can, can do. I mean, you, we all know this. Learning online is not like learning in a face-to-face environment. <laughs> and <Yeah>. and yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is an understatement right now, isn't it? <laughs> Bold. <laughs> Bold statement. <laughs> but, you know, in, when perhaps the last experience of education you had was 10 years ago when it was in high school, 
Um, you know, it's a highly structured environment. Your timetable is dictated to you. Your curriculum is dictated to you. Um, you know, you, you're you, you're on a, I don't want to say a treadmill, but, you know, there's a lot of structure provided for you. Um, and now you find yourself studying online on your own. Um, you know, peer interaction is more limited. Um, and, yeah, and you have to provide that discipline. And you perhaps have to use technology you've not encountered before as well. So we do provide orientation and support. And, and there's a whole range of supports. This is why we have, um, you know, mental health supports as well. Um, because it can be, you know, it's, it's a challenge for a lot of students. There's all sorts of challenges wrapped up in there. There's the all the kind of can I do this, will I make it kind of stuff. There's mm-hmm. um, Then there's the t- unfamiliar technology and then there's the, um, you know the the nature of post secondary study versus maybe what, what people last experienced in high school, um, and quite often people are balancing it with working, um, and perhaps families as well. So, so it is it is a different sort of challenge, and it does need um, a fair amount of wraparound support to help um, manage expectations. And it's it's a really difficult um, it's a really difficult thing. Um, because what makes education doable for a large number of our learners is that flexibility, that self-paced individual study mode model, because you can wrap it around your life in whatever way suits you. But by its very nature, you're not having a cohort-based experience. You and a bunch of other students are not having the same experience at the same time. Um, so and we see this in graduate studies where we do have more cohort-based programs where you know our students like the peer contact and like the social aspects, but the minute you ask people to do group work, holy, you know, do not do this to us. This is painful. <laughs> to sync my schedule with somebody else's schedule, and this is not the flexibility I wanted or need from this program. And so there's a real I think all of our programs operate in this real tension that our students like all online students, want connection and want to feel close to their, you know, their peers, their uh, their academic faculty, their institution. Um, but they also need almost complete flexibility to, to fit this round their lives. And those two things operate in tension with each other. Yeah, I think we touched on it kind of as well. We'll speak to Tim Fawns about that, create, that creation of that online community, mm-hmm. which, which can flex with you um or for students that are, are online so there is that kind of you know they can um, but if, interact but if you're not moving through a program or even a course at the same pace as everybody else mm. if you're on week one and someone else is on week five and someone else is on week two you're not all having the same experience either so uh, yes i mean peer peer connection definitely there is a place and space for creating that kind of community absolutely but some of what makes it work is shared experience and the level at which we're sharing the same experience in the same time frame is also diluted. Oh, there's so many different tangents that you can go <laughs> off into. It, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Mm, um, and frightening as well. And it must be a massive, because it's, it, it's like distance learning at scale on roids. Yes, um, Yes. And distance learning at scale for those listening is, is a is a project at the university looking at delivering a micro accreditation courses um, online at scale. 
so, but this is basically what Athabasca kind of does. Um, we do it to an extent. I mean, we do fairly traditional education at the moment, but, you know, why did I leave the University of Edinburgh to come to an open university in a foreign country is <laughs> the, the critical question underneath this. What was, it, what was it about this job that made me, you know, pack up and leave the country I was born in? and everything I hold dear and find myself now trapped in another country for goodness knows how long. Um, Athabasca has um, an intention to grow. And the model that we have at the moment, it, it, I'm going to say it is quite traditional. There's many things about it that are not traditional at all. But, it, you know, it's still a program course-based kind of model. Um, one of the things that started here last year, the year before, is a... Um, a, a kind of a corporate commercial um, learning wing called Power Ed, yeah. who are partnering with um, kind of non-profits and businesses to help them deliver learning in whatever context. So um, some of the org- one of the organizations we partner with is a group called the Rick Hansen Foundation, who um, train people to do uh, accessibility audits of physical buildings. And we now deliver their course completely online, including a completely online assessment where that was previously done as a a face-to-face assessment. Um, And that means, you know, their ability to scale and offer, um, that foundation's ability to scale and offer that really important kind of training um, is now greatly enhanced. Um, we, We do work with other universities to give them some capacity as well. So hosting helping change their face-to-face learning materials into something that's suitable for online learning and then providing some hosting and we can do whitelisting of, of our platform for them. Um, but that that started off as a, as a kind of separate, well, not a separate arm of the university, but it started off as a, you know, a, a, a separate endeavour so that it could find its feet. But clearly in terms of, of growing and in terms of thinking about the kinds of the kind of institution we are, we're kind of a lifelong learning institution anyway. That's typically what open universities will tend to be. You can pitch up at any time in life, and many of our learners do pitch up later in life, and you can do as much or as little as you want. And there's no admissions criteria, certainly not at undergraduate level. So it's not a competitive entry. Um, so so if you're in that space already, then thinking about how you move from workplace training into accredited study, um, into, you know, what you might do maybe later in your career to top your skills up. Um, how do we have a relationship with a learner through their entire lifetime? Um, and so having the non-credit component, um, and then thinking about the kinds of stuff we were doing at Edinburgh with MicroMasters, how do you use some of that activity maybe mm. to lower the overall cost of a full degree. And this is where PLAR fits as well, this PLAR um, recognition of learning. It's about accessibility and affordability. It's about getting mm. education to as many people as want it at a cost that most can afford. And anything we can do to lower barriers, you know, we've already lowered the barrier to admission because there isn't one for undergraduate. <laughs> you can come and you can try. Um, yeah there's no entrance there's no entrance criteria um do do you find people do come back i mean if it is a lifelong do you find the same person might 
re-engage with Athabasca over the course of their I honestly, career? I honestly don't know what the data about that looks like. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't tell you. I think a lot of it will, will be driven by what we teach and what people need. Sure. Um, you know, the, the learners who come to us are generally looking to achieve something educationally in order to progress in some other part of their life, most often work, either to change career or to give them some sort of advantage within the career path that they're currently in. So we teach nursing. And we have a lot of healthcare professionals who are who are looking to, you know, become licensed nurses. Um, for oh, okay. example, so. Um, well, you you mentioned earlier about the uh, so, some of the new things that they're learning besides how does you know they haven't been in school for ten years mm-hmm. and they're coming back to a slightly unfamiliar system perhaps and you have support around that but that you mentioned the technology bits but. Can you uh, expand a little bit? What what technology is being used in these programs? <laughs> so, I, what is what is perplexing? Yeah, uh, about that for people, do you find? What's perplexing about technology? I think um, I think the very fact that you're not with thirty other people in the classroom with a teacher at the front. Mm. Um, a lot a lot of our undergraduate courses are are the kind of wraparound model. Um, not not all of them, but quite a number of them. So you know, a core textbook. And then a kind of online course wrapped around utilizing a core textbook. Um, but yeah, the, the unfamiliar pieces. It's not that the technology is necessarily hard to use. Moodle is our, our LMS, but it's it's a different paradigm. Mm. Um, and I see. And see and see your courses as well. Do they all have a certain set of standards? Um, you know, like as uh, I know for internal for the University of Edinburgh, I'm thinking about like something like the Learn Foundations course, which um, make sure that we have standard language, standard uh, look and feel for the courses, so that people can jump around and navigate easily. Or there, there um, are some standards. There are some standard templates, but the extent to which they're fully utilised across all the courses is, um, I think, is a. I don't think it is at the moment. Now, different people will give me different answers to that questions and <laughs> question, and have given me different answers to that question. But <laughs> which is students, always an indicator. Students will tell us that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, when they take courses from different faculties, that they can look quite different. Um, so, so back to that question about why did I leave Edinburgh and come here? Athabasca are looking to grow, but they are they know in order to grow, we know in order to grow um, that we also need to do a full technology refresh, and we need to really rethink um, what the educational experience you know, the kind of educational experiences for our students in all sorts of ways. But one of the most immediate things we de- need to do is replace our VLE, LMS in um, North American terms, I'm bilingual now, our, our student information system, and we need to put a, a, a CRM in place for inquiry and inquiry management and student um, support. And we've decided to do all three at once. And oh, we're wow. calling it... And we're calling it our integrated learning environment. And the reason that we're doing that is because when you look at all the the data we've gathered about the student experience, we've we've done a number of journey mapping projects, the points at which students have problems, the points at which life gets tough for our students is when they are transitioning very very often, this is not exclusively, but when they're transitioning between the administrative and the academic sides of the institution. Um, you know, when you hand in your final assessment, 
do you book your exam in time? Um, have you booked your exam in time? There's quite a lot of complexity around fees uh, and financial aid. Um, and being a provincial model, <laughs> you've got as many financial aid systems as you have provinces in Canada, and then you've got some federal things laid on top of that. So mm. um, there's a lot of quite complex um, administration that sits around a student study. Um, and because it's self-directed and self-paced, you know, exams don't happen at scheduled time. Exams happen when you book your exam. And then you come to a place or you do it online or via proctor, um, you know, but you, it, that is as flexible as everything else is. Um, but in terms of guiding somebody through that and, and supporting somebody through that, you know, it's, it's not the academic and the administrative sides of the university. And we don't structure the student's journey intentionally in that kind of way. Um, individuals do, and there's a lot of scaffolding put in place in courses and things to support them, but a lot of our systems and processes were certainly not designed with that kind of mindset. Um, so we we are we, we bid for, and literally this week, I think, signed some of the paperwork on um, a procurement to buy these new systems and implement them. Um, and so we will be re-architecting a whole bunch of our admin processes and a whole bunch, um, well, thinking about moving our learning content from one platform to another, but thinking about how the new platform might support doing some different things. But one, a number of the opportunities we have then is to think about, you know, common template and moving everything into a kind of, uh, you know, a slightly more unified starting position. Um, and then how can we use some of the affordances of the, the platform we're going to go to to put more of the scaffolding in place automatically so that students are guided into and back out of their academic content into administrative processes and back again. Because, mm. again, our students are maybe not, you know, their mental model of what university is is, is not there and they're studying whilst doing a million different things right now. A lot of different things. Um, it sounds like it's trying to manage that student flow so it's as seamless as possible for them to give them the best experience. Yeah, and I mean that's only that's one part of what we are what we are planning to do. But it's kind of it's underpinning it's underpinning stuff because if you want to grow and you want to scale, we don't want to be spending extraordinarily large amounts of money on on administration. We want to put mm. as much support into achieving student success as we possibly can. So trying to make that as simple and smooth as we can is, is a big part of, of getting to scale. Um, and then the other part around getting to scale is, is obviously some of the automation and data-driven approaches that we were working on at Edinburgh. Yeah. Which is why I'm here. <laughs> and I so, think and, in and, part why they, why they, why they decided to choose me because the kind of obvious person for this role when you look at it on paper would have been a you know a kind of a career registrar or someone who's looking for the next step up maybe from running an office of the registrar but because I have a background in online delivery and an understanding of educational technology you know that and I know you know I know about student administration from all the work that I did at Edinburgh over many years around portals and you know, running a lot of our systems 
your system's not mine anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I have, I have a good idea of what those areas do. Um, and it, yeah, I think now... Know, I, that's the skills they need. So, and, um, and I think that, that we'd be daft not to ask a question about um, the impact of the current pandemic as well. <laughs> um, you know, because obviously... Uh, um, you know, the impact upon the University of Edinburgh, which is mainly an on-campus-based institution, is, is massive. Um, but for Athabasca, which is, like you said already, it's 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 online. Um, a lot of the staff are already working at home or working remotely. Mm. Um, the, uh, is the impact as much or...? Um, it, so the impact is not as much. There's no question about that. And the financial impact is certainly not as much because... Our students expect to be studying online um, and so we haven't made some kind of massive shift in what our students, you know, how our students are working and there's no question that that, that um, is helpful. And, you know, we're not a campus-based university so we don't rely on making money out of our buildings in the way that many other institutions do. So some of the financial pressures that a number of other institutions are facing are, are not ours. Um, what we have had to do, what I've had to do, <laughs> is flip our entire administration into a remote distributed workforce. And a good chunk of that is in northern Alberta in rural locations with bad internet. Um, so, fun, fun, fun. <laughs> so, 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 you know, we, we turned a 50-person office of the registrar into a fully distributed remote workforce in two weeks. Because we were expecting shutdowns to come and it's really hard for us as an online university to to say we can't continue to support our students to study online because our administration relies on paper and a building in in northern Alberta. So we've had to re-architect a whole bunch of IT processes um, to turn electronic uh, paper processes into electronic processes. Do not get me started on how transcripts work in Canada. And the amount of paper that's in the Canadian education system is insane. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, you know, how do we how do we become at speed a much more paperless organisation? And how do we turn our administration into a remote distributed workforce so that we can continue to meet students' needs? But the thing that's probably been the biggest challenge is exams because our I mentioned earlier that you know students book exams a lot of our a lot of our courses are still assessed in very traditional ways um, with high stakes invigilated final exams and you can come to a physical invigilation centre in Calgary or Edmonton or Athabasca which lots of Albertan students do or you can pay to go to another site. We have arrangements with lots of different organisations across Canada and, and outside where you can go to a remote invigilation centre. And there could be other universities, libraries, and there's also individuals that do this privately. Um, and, you know, we post out a paper script and you write your exam and then it's posted back. Um, or we use ProctorU. And we don't use the AI Proctor. We use the human proctored service. Um, so it's you know an individual and they get you set up and they check your space, make sure you're comfortable with what's going on and then you write your exam and somebody stares at you through a webcam. Slightly creepy, but I honestly probably not that much worse than being in a room with somebody staring at you from the front of the room. It's it's the same kind of model. Uh, but, they, you know, in for our students who are in remote places, because um, lots of Canada is quite remote, 
that kind of model is completely flexible for them, you know, not having to travel long distances to go to whatever invigilation centre is it's quite important. Um, so we've always had these, these mechanisms, but what we're finding now is when you're at home and your whole family are at home and all your kids are at home and your dog and your cat are, you know, strolling all over your kitchen table and everything is crazy, how can you find three hours of quiet space to sit and write a proctored exam? Even if we can deliver these exams online, the actual doability of them for lots of our students is, is you know, massively affected. And we hadn't digitised all of our exams. We've been working on an exam digitisation project, but we, we weren't there yet. And some of our exams are quite hard to digitise um, in areas like maths, for example. We know this from Edinburgh, you know, finding exam systems that handle the notation. So... Um, yeah, so we've had a lot of work to do at very short notice around alternative assessments and supporting students to take open book exams or you know, do some kind of alternative coursework like assessment or you know, if, if you've done a midterm and enough coursework, have you actually been assessed on all the learning outcomes already? In which case, can we finalise a grade for you and, and move you on? And, um, lots of different and very creative thinking has had to go into that and that's probably been the big challenge uh, that's the, the and and that's the the uh seeing if you somewhere in your learning you've satisfied the learning objectives and then giving a grade based on that wherever they are that's a covid response or is that a normal uh, course of action it's one of the course is one of the responses that we're using right now but actually everything we're doing around alternative assessments is based on things we've had to do in the past, either to support students with accommod with accommodations, um, students with you know registered disabilities, or you know where an exam script has gone missing in the post and you don't want to ask the student to rewrite it, or you know there's lots of exception processes that we've had to use in the past. So we've pulled all of those out and said these are all the things we know how to do to assess students to you know complete their courses. Um, and you can use one of any of these things. So, so yeah, we, we have had to do that in the past. Um, and it's just, it's one of our responses now. But it is challenging. You know, there are a number of my colleagues who believe that the most appropriate way to assess their course is through a final high stakes exam, an invigilated exam. It's kind of in their minds as the gold standard. And, um, you know, and when we it's, when we say, well, you know, a student can't do it right now. They just they don't have a good enough computer. They rely on community internet, and all the Starbucks are closed. Or, you know, they they don't have a space in their home where they can be private and quiet for three hours to take a proctored exam. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they're all really great points, and I think it's something that's been I know we've been talking about in, internally uh, with the change here, and I think that's probably. Um, something that we're going to talk about soon in the podcast. Um, so, but I think that's probably a, a a great point to end this discussion. Michael needs to run away. I'm sorry, I've made you late. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. There's there's people from from a very distraught school waiting for my presence. You need to go. <laughs> you need to go. You need to go. The, the, the pastor right. of pedagogy must run. The pastor. Yeah, that's right. Or, or the, <laughs> that's right. Or the priest of pedagogy, right. depending on who speaks. Yeah. I'm sure that's the one that's going to stick in, in terms of <laughs> nicknames, right? <laughs> All right. So I guess we'll, we'll call it a close. I just want to uh, thank Emery. Thank you so much for, for joining us here today. I'm sure it, will be, it won't be the only conversation yeah. we have yeah. 
episode. No, uh, and I'm sure we'll have more. I would I think love for learning to analytics. Yeah, I think for learning Alex, we'll definitely get him read back. Um, so, and that'll be one of the podcasts that we did record but got corrupted, and we'll do in the yes, new we. Future. It's the missing podcast clo- seven, isn't it? That's that's right. We should we should close on that point and make make it known that Anne Marie was good enough to do this twice because yeah. we were so incompetent the first time around. <laughs> and then we recorded it, and then we somehow didn't actually record mm. it. But it was a lovely it was a lovely conversation. Yes. <laughs> I look forward that to exists in the annals. <laughs> yeah, we will do it again for sure. So, and uh, in, in closing, this is uh, Michael Gallagher from uh, the Eminem Podcast. And Miles Blaney. And Anne Marie Scott. And there you go. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye bye.